0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We're continuing a sermon series. I'm sure everyone's really excited about learning about Nehemiah. I'm excited about Nehemiah for a number of reasons. Number one, most people don't know much about it, so that makes me look like an expert. Number two is when you read the book of Nehemiah, a lot of us deal with people, either um, people that you're supervising or people that you have influence on. If you want to talk about leadership, you've got kids, uh, there's a spouse, there's people above you, there's people below you, all around even if you're just on a sports team or you're something like that, you have influence on people. And what we're looking at is how, what's a godly way to not just be like a leader and then over here is my Christian life. I think the benefit of looking at Nehemiah is here's his Christian life or here's his believing life and then here's his leadership skills and they kind of get intertwined. So I think it's ideal situation when you talk about what are some of the things that you can do? Okay, what does this look like? So we took some practical things just before. So Nehemiah took responsibility last week if you remember. And I'll go through a little bit of history, and maybe I'll do it in that order. If you want to know some history, here's the history in about two minutes. This is, that should say Abraham, I got I cut off. Just think about the Old Testament history. If you can get this down, you're in good shape. If you can think of the Old Testament history in, in chunks of 500 years, God was very helpful to us, and he put major events at 500-year increments. So this is super helpful. So the, all Jewish history starts with Abraham. That's at 2,000. That's what it says right there. And then the next one would be Moses, so we're at 1,500. So you talk about Moses and the Ten Commandments. So Abraham has a son Isaac, and Isaac has a son Jacob, and Jacob has a son Joseph. And then they're in, remember, they're slaves for 400, I think it's 80 years, 420 years. And then finally, they escape with Moses, who's 120 years old. Does anyone know the 1,000 block? This is someone really famous. Solomon, Solomon's dad. So, so right around there, when we say 1,000, we usually say David. So we have jo- um, Abraham, Moses, and David. So 2,000, 1,500, 1,000. If you can somehow get these hooks or these uh, to put history on, this is going to help you a lot as you study the Old Testament. You're like, okay, when is this? It's between these two times. That helps a lot. And it may have taken me like 15 years and finally going into the sem to figure this out. The other one is 0 or 1 AD, about 4 AD, 4 to 6 would be... Um, BC would be Jesus. I didn't make this. I, I found it on the internet. This is the exact thing I wanted to do, and they had it. So I, was, I had a little tear of joy. Now, in the middle, and it, 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 you notice there's kind of a big empty spot, right? So what happens at around 500 Babylon? So when we're talking about um, Daniel and the lion's den, we're talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going over. That is all around 500. And at the point of 500, there's only about 100 years of Old Testament history left. That doesn't mean like all things stopped, but when you read the Old Testament at 400 years before Jesus, that's Malachi, it's done. So they're not talking about anything else. So if you can master this, you are set. So I'll just let you memorize that beautiful diagram. So, why is this a big deal? The kings, they wanted a king, remember? So Moses, it's a theocracy, so God is ruling through Moses. That's what they call it, a theocracy. God's really in charge, and Moses is kind of his spokesperson. But then at some point, the people start to get frustrated, and they send the land of the judges. So the judges is not a good situation. That's Samson, and it, it says everyone did as they saw fit, which would be pretty accurate. Not a great situation. And then when we get to after the judges, they say, hey, we look around like everybody's got a king. They're like teenagers, right? They look around, they're like, all my friends have this. So they're going to God, God, listen, all our friends have a king, we want a king. And so God says, deal, I'll give you a king. So for the first time in their history, the Jewish people are no longer ruled kind of directly by God, but instead they have a king, and the king's name is Saul. So Saul was a lousy king. But then we have David. So David comes, and then we have, so it's going great. And David's a warrior. And then Solomon, his son, the expanse of the empire gets as big as it ever gets really under David and Solomon. But under Solomon, God is so appalled by his misleading of the people, God says, after you, this kingdom is going to split. And so the north and south split, and I've told you that before. The the Assyrians stole all the northern tribes, and now we have the south. So this is Judah. God predicted that they would be taken away, and they were, in 486 B.C., right around that time, God took the, through the Babylonians. I just got another tear of joy that you can see things on my projector for the first time in seven years. The, uh, we got a new one, home equity loan to make it happen. So they, this is right over here. So Jerusalem, they're all taken over. All the smart people, all the useful people are taken over to Babylon. And this is how it's going until the Babylonians got whooped by the Persians and the Medes. So this is the, the Persian rugs. That's the same kind of thing in mead, the, the honey wine. It's spelled differently, so it's totally different. But the Medes and the Persians come over, they sneak under the wall while Bathsheba is throwing a party and they like take over the whole entire city. It's kind of a fascinating history. It's a huge thing because the turning point of the most powerful nation now switches and the laws of the Medes and Persians now rules. They've got a new policy though. Like, you know, you get a new government and they have a new policy. We get a new president, they have new policies. And they start doing all this stuff, right? That's exactly what happened. The Medes and Persians said, okay, instead of consolidating all the smart people here, Let's send them back so they're happy. And so they make this decree. You can go back and build your temple. And one of the nations that they had conquered were the people of Jerusalem. And they said, you know what? You can go back. And so they, they fire up under Zerubbabel. I don't know if that would fit on the back of his jersey, but Zerubbabel would go, uh, he takes all these people, and they go back and they start rebuilding the temple. And then Ezra, a much shorter name, starts rebuilding kind of this spiritual thing. And then we get to Nehemiah. They go back in waves of three. And so everyone from Babylon started making their way back to Jerusalem, and that's where we pick up our story. So Nehemiah now, if you remember, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. That means he had very close proximity to the king, and he would test all the food to make sure it wasn't poisonous. So Nehemiah is there, and he's in this close proximity, starts talking to his brother, and he says, Hey, how's everything going in Jerusalem? And this is not a short journey. This is like 800 miles. So this would take four months to do. So his brother comes back and he goes, the report is not good. The walls are broken down, it's, it's a mess, you know, there's enemies all around and, and this is not going well. So Nehemiah is distraught. And because, as I said, ultimately his first love would be home. So even if you lived here, so I've lived here since 2010 and I lived in Washington, but when you think about your hometown, like the house you grew up in, the one you, you have all your memories about, like going to the chocolate shop and walking to the pool and all this stuff, if I found out my home, my parents don't even live there anymore, but if my home The one I grew up in for most of my life burned to the ground, I would be really sad. Like, this is my home. But for the the Jewish people, they're not just talking about, like, a house that's worth $100,000. They're talking about, like, this beautiful, that's the temple, uh, a depiction of the temple. All this, when the Babylonians came, they just destroyed it. Because one of the ways to do it, you can imagine that would just break, it would just break them. And and so the, the Jewish people were just crushed. They didn't want to rebel. And they dreamed of the day they would see this temple again. And so they, Zerubbabel comes and he starts to build this temple and we told you the Solomons was so beautiful and it had so much gold and so much silver that people just said it was like people would come from a, like a wonder of the world that would come to see it. And when they got done with the second one, they cried. Because if you've seen the first one, you've cried. This would be like the equivalent of if you know like a great, I got a great illustration. I just made it up. Amy always says don't use too many sports illustrations. So just don't listen right now. So Michael Jordan, when you saw him in his day, was fantastic, and you'd just be in awe, and you'd be like, that is incredible. And then you saw him play for the Wizards. Well, at first you saw him play baseball, not very well, and then you saw him play for the Wizards, and he's like, suddenly, he's not flying through the air, and he looks like a large human being that you're just like, whatever happened. Like, it would have been better, Joe Montana, you know, like when he had to get, go to the Chiefs, you're like, whatever happened. Um, that's not the same, not that Joel Montana was like this elite athlete. Somehow he's a guy who could be an accountant and, then, and also be a, one of the best football players ever. So th- the same thing happened when they saw it, they were just utterly crushed. So Nehemiah, it, he, his heart breaks, and he says, I've got to do something about this. And we talked about that last week. He said, uh, he starts to say this prayer, he, he fasts, he doesn't eat so he can concentrate, and he says this prayer to God that says, God, I'm part of the problem here. Right? He doesn't say, I can't believe they don't have these walls fixed. I can't believe. It. He says, God, I'm part of the problem. So he recognizes his own sinfulness. This is Nehemiah chapter 1. And then, though, he leans on God's promises. And that was kind of a fascinating thing. He says, God, you promised. You promised that you have this people that you're going to take out. And you're, you're going to send them away for a while, but you're going to bring them all back. Like, if we follow and obey you, God, you're going to restore us. And we're kind of counting on you to follow through with your promises. So that's what he leads up to, and that's always a good plan. To, when you pray to God, lean on his promises. You know, I want, and we gave examples, right? I want, you want all men to be saved. You want all people to be saved. So when you're thinking about someone far from God, you're saying, God, I'm going to lean on your promises. Bless the, the meeting I'm about to have. That's exactly what he does. He says, bless this meeting as he gets ready to talk to Artaxerxes. So when you hear this, The next chapter comes in, and he's talking to Artaxerxes, and you think, okay, so that was probably like 15 minutes later, right? So he fasts for like four days, and he prays, and he has this dramatic prayer, and he's like, bless my time with Artaxerxes. And he goes in, and you get this impression, it's like two minutes later, right? Not exactly. Um, Do you know when you're a kid, and you want to have like a sleepover, and you think about the exact right time to ask your parents did it ever coincide with your room being cleaned? Did it ever coincide with like getting them coffee in the morning? Did it ever coincide with any of this manipulative behaviors that you, has this ever happened to you and you're like, okay, as a kid, has anyone ever done this? There is very distinct, my kids are nodding their head. Right? I've been played, <laughs> right? So there's, there's a certain thing that you wait and, and your kids, it doesn't take too long when they're young and they just ask whenever they want. When they want something, they ask you, you're like, really, you haven't even figured this out? You can't ask me now, I'm obviously frustrated. You gotta do something nice so that I get really excited and then you can, then I can be manipulated easily. I'm like Play-Doh. So, so this is how it works and you have, you're trying to work this out but then you're like, okay. That's back when I was a kid, I'd never do that as an adult. You ever pick the right time when you tell your wife that you bought a bass boat? You ever pick the right time when your husband walks in and they're like, is that a new outfit? And you're like, no, this, I've had this for months in the back of my drawer waiting for the right moment where I can break this out, right? There's, there's certain things that you if you just get things right, that you, there's certain things with your boss. Like you don't just walk in, I'd like a vacation. You wait for the right moment, right? There's a certain moment. Now what happens though? So that's just normal everyday interactions. I was just reading about, I can't think of the list of it. It's called the green list or something like that where uh, celebrities have requests before they go and perform. And we just t- brought this up. Remember Van Halen? They have the most famous one of all time. They said that they get a giant bowl of M&M's but you have to remove all the, the chocolate ones. The, the, the <laughs> they're all chocolate, technically. All right, the, the chocolate ones, you have to remove the brown ones. And so the story on that one is kind of fascinating. So I always thought this is really weird because who'd wanna touch this? And they're like, oh, we never ate them. Who'd wanna eat M&M's where everyone picked through them? Like, they, they just did that because if they got the M&M's right, they figured all the rest of their show would be right, which I think is pretty clever. So now I, I'm going to New York to speak, so I'm going to put in the same request. I'm just hoping to get reimbursed for my travel, you know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have it super high. So this is, uh, is kind of how they do it. And you look at all these lists. You look at, like, what Beyonce has. The room has to be at 78 degrees, and she can't have any Coke products within her in reach. You look at Rihanna, and she has to have, uh, it has to be all white. No, that's uh, J-Lo, has to have all white, and the sheer things and curtains. You can't see any brick walls. Uh, somebody, who was it? Uh, Justin Bieber, I think, needs 5 five prep rooms. I'm like, what is this? Like the rinse cycle at a public? <laughs> like you go through the one, like the dishwasher system at, the, at a restaurant. I don't know how this all works, but all of them have all these like, unique things, and you can imagine, like 90% of it is how much alcohol should be there, but it's like all, you go through this whole list, and they've got power, right? They've got power. They're the ones who are doing the show. People are paying. Uh, I just, my daughter went to see Taylor Swift, and that's 50,000 people. If you figure $100 a ticket, that's $5 million dollars. So they got some power, right, to say, if you want your water upside down and filtered, that's fine with me because this is a big deal. There's a phrase that says, when you talk about politics, that says, um, power corrupts, if you know how this finishes, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. So if you wanna talk about really weirdos, celebrities are weird, they got a lot of power. It gets really weird when you start talking about, uh, here's one example people of royalty because now they have control over your life so princess alexandra uh, i don't know if you'd say amelie or emily but amelie of bavaria so she only wore white and you're like oh that's no big deal uh eric the fourth 14th of sweden was really particular. particularly ruled like eight years but if you would laugh in his presence he would sometimes kill you i bet that was a fun court to hang out in huh <laughs> We could go on for about half an hour, but I'm jumping... Like, King George is famously mad, if you know about... King, if you, anyone has seen Hamilton and the King George III who lost the colonies, that's what he's kind of known for. But he was, like, he had a mental, and then they also said it was physical. So, like, later on, he had to be strapped, and they had to wheel him in on a gurney so that he could rule. But people loved him. Like, they, that was, like, endearing to him. So here's... I don't know how to pronounce that. So, so if you can... Zhu, hausaho emperor Zengde. All right, that's my guess. So he was 14 years old when he became ruler in China. It was the Ming dynasty. So he's 14 years old, and this is a big deal, and they raised him up in the the teachings of Confucius, and they were really excited. This guy is going to be awesome, and he's going to be fantastic. Well, he gets married, kind of, at 14, does not like his wife, is known to, um, I'm just giving you some of the examples. He would make his court dress up because he liked to pretend he was a commoner. So he would make all his officials, like high-end officials, imagine this happening like at the White House, and he would make all the officials dress up and pretend to put on a public market outside his palace so then he could go and walk around as a commoner and he could order stuff. And you're like, okay, that's not that weird. How about this? Um, They had uh, had a zoo that was for exotic animals, exotic cats, but he was kind of obsessed with women, and so instead of putting cats in there, he put women in the zoo. Kind of weird? He would also go to see prostitutes. Super weird? It gets weirder. So we're just gonna pause right there and say, when you're in charge and people's lives are in your hand, you have absolute power, things get weird. It gets weird, there's a whole list of of royalty that have done weird, weird things and demand certain things. Like the last president of Egypt only drove red cars and demanded that no one else would drive a red car. Like this stuff's weird. Now I'm not saying Artaxerxes is weird necessarily, But when you think about the laws of the Medes and Persians, uh, we we get a glimpse of it. Did you hear that in, in the account where it says, like, Daniel had never been sad in his presence before? Can you think of a boss that you've never been sad in their presence ever? Like, just imagine you're married, and you're like, I will never be sad ever. Someone's nodding. So you have, you have a boss like Artaxerxes. So Artaxerxes had this, they had rules like this that they saw themselves often as deities. And if you were sad in their presence, they're like, I'm not going to put up with this. So he, he went this whole time without ever being sad. And Artaxerxes had a law called the Medes and the Persians. You ever read that in the Bible where it says, according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians. What does that mean? Does anyone have any idea? We can repeal laws. We can change laws. I can change my mind. So with my kids, if I'm with my kids and I make some dad rule up, and I got plenty of dad rules, but if I make some dad rule up, I can go to my kids, okay, here's the rule, and they're like, dad, I don't know if that's a great rule. And I'm like, okay, can I change it? I can. not And I got a new dad rule. What happens, if you remember Daniel, this is, if you know the story of Daniel really well, so it was the same thing was true in Babylon. So Daniel went into, remember, they tricked the official, the head guy, Nebuchadnezzar, and he loved Daniel. That Daniel was his favorite. And they said, okay, here's the way we're going to get to Daniel. He always prays. And so they said, went to the king and said, oh, great king, you, you are a god. This is what's going to happen. Anyone who does not uh, worship you or praise, now they're going to go to the de- lion's den, right? And th- this sounds like a great idea. The king realizes he's been tricked and that his own law is condemning his favorite person. And what does he do? Now, most of us are like, well, he's the king. Why doesn't he just go, okay, that was a mistake? Once a law is put into practice, once a decision is made, it can never go back. So whenever the Bible talks about the laws of the Medes and Persians, they have made, like, here's a decree. You cannot go back on that decree. Does that make some sense? I'm laying some background for our story to continue. This is in the book of Ezra. I'm trying to lay the groundwork so you understand what's going on. So this is in the book of Ezra. It's the sister book of Nehemiah. And this is a letter that uh, the enemies in the trans-Euphrates wrote. So when they, they, they weren't big fans of the Jewish people. And they're like, you know what? I don't like that they're building up their temple. We've got to do something about it. So this is a copy of the letter. This is right in Ezra. To King Artaxerxes. I should do it in my villain voice. But from your servants in trans-Euphrates, the king should know, just letting you know, the king should know that people who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid. And eventually the royal revenues will suffer. Now since we are under obligation to the palace and to it, it is not proper for us to see the king dishonored. We, we wouldn't want that to happen anyway. We are sending this message to inform the king so that a search may be made uh, in the archives of your predecessors. In these records, you will find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and provinces, a place where a long history of sedition, that is why this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in trans-Euphrates. The king sent this reply. To Rahum and the commanding officer, Shimshai, the secretary, and the rest of their associates living in Samaria and elsewhere in Trans Euphrates greetings. The letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence. I issued an order and a search was made, and it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of the trans-Euphrates, that's uh, David and Solomon, and taxes, tribute and duty were paid to them. Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to g- neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests? As soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rehum and Shimshai, the secretary and their associates, They went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This is Artaxerxes, right? There's a history involved. And so remember what was Nehemiah's goal. His heart goes out to his home city but from the very ruling power, they had already issued a decree from the laws of the Medes and Persians that said, this doesn't happen. And so when you hear about Nehemiah in the presence thinking about making this request, it's not a request to your spouse, it's not a request to, like your boss, this is a request to a person that determines if you live and die. And it says he fasted and he prayed and he got ready. So remember that first one happened in December. So this is when he's fasting and he's praying and he says, Lord, bless, bless this effort I'm about to do. He doesn't go the next day. He doesn't go two days after. He doesn't go a week after. Do you know when Nisan is? Four months. Four months he's looking for this moment. And this whole time it's as if he's fasting and he's praying and he's, and he's trying to figure out how in the world. You know, this is, the, this is this problem that is way bigger than I can imagine. How in the world am I going to get to Jerusalem to help my people? But he's not just sitting there, and I think you're going to see that. Not that This whole month time, he's not just fasting and praying. He's making this plan to say, like, what would I say to the king if I ever got that opportunity? So finally, finally, in the month of Nisan, that's the same as the Passover, the opportunity presents itself. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And I like how it tells his background. He says, I'm very much afraid. Why is he afraid? Because this guy's already made a rule that says, I'm not going to go into this area. And he doesn't know what to do. And he's finally sad for the first time because his heart is so broken. He doesn't know if the king's going to kill him. But he's afraid. But he said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Okay. I told you about a book that I read uh, by Jocko Willems, Willems, something like that, and it's called The Extreme Ownership, but eventually he's saying you gotta take ownership, you gotta take responsibility, but he's the first one that told me this concept of ruling up, and and, and not ruling, but uh, leading up the chain of command, and that's a fascinating thing as I, I fill out more reports and things like that, as I fill things out. You know, I used to be complaining, and I'd be so frustrated, I'm like, you know what? What can I do so that this situation is good? What can I do to make their life easier? So when I need a letter from somebody, I'm like, hey, do you mind writing a recommendation letter for our grant? Here's a possible copy that you could maybe use. And they're like, thanks, Jared. Erase my name, put their name, and they send it in. And when I run into other stuff, they say, hey, can you run those numbers? You run those numbers. So they get it. You you think, what could I possibly do? You're looking for moments where the person above you, you're trying to find this, this, this way to try and make their life easier. But my question to you is, is that the only way... That you get things from people? If you're a high achiever, and I think many of you are high achievers, right? You can't really live in Castle Rock and be a low achiever, right? Many of you are high achievers. I'm guessing your boss, on a boss level, appreciates you. And I'm guessing that you have a way that if you do things, you can make their life pretty miserable. So are you the employee that says, you know what? I'm so valuable to this company that I'm going to manipulate the situation so I get everything I want. Are you going to be sarcastic? Are you going to downgrade? Are you going to manipulate situations so that you get what you want? And you say, okay, what, what about if it's not my boss? Like, Are there ways that you can manipulate your spouse to get what you want? This is a relationship, Right? Can you lay on the silent treatment? Can you withhold things? Can you be the one that says we're not going to spend money on that? We are going to spend money on this. We're going to do that. We're going to do this. This is how we're going to do it. I just heard someone speak and they said that in a relationship there's only, there's only two motivations that go into it. And I thought, oh, give me a break. There's more than two. Number one, you're either entering a relationship to get power or you're entering a relationship to get connection. I think she was right. If you got, Are you in a, in a struggle with your boss at work where you're both trying to get power? And you're like, fine, I'll do what you want, but wait till you see what I do. And if you have a relationship, the way this, uh, she explained it, I just lost her name, but the way she explained it is if, if one is looking for power and one is looking for connection, you're going to see that person just press down and abuse that person again and again and again and again. In your relationship with your spouse, and that's where I'm bringing it down to, not just a boss or your kids, is your relationship about building a connection or is it about showing your power? And it goes both ways, right? You can, it's not just about controlling money. It's not just controlling time. It's not just showing physical power, but sometimes it's showing emotional power. You feel good about yourself? I can take care of that. You think you're worth something? I can take care of that. And someone feels so bad and so broken that they just bend to your will. How is it How is it that you handle these situations what God has put you in? Not that you're just ruling over people, not that you're just a leadership role, but how do you handle the people above you? Are you just manipulating? Are you sarcastic? Are you bending things so it's a power struggle? Or are you seeking some kind of connection? And we're going to look at his example in a second, but just as a side note, this is not on marriage. But if you find a marriage that we both say, let's both try with all our might to make a connection, I think that's when you see something special. And so Nehemiah's situation, I think, is a great example, as he says to the king, what do you want? He doesn't know how to answer, so he says, oh, i got to go back. I forgot about this. All right, got to turn that up just a little bit. All right, so I don't, I know, I never talked about dogs, then I get a dog, and I talk about dog every week. So this is a, this is a training video, okay? This is a training video. So I'm demonstrating... Some training here, so we'll just I filmed yeah, it this back morning. Seat. Back seat. Okay, shotgun. Shotgun. All right. One more time. Good boy. So the question on this video is who's being trained? There's a phrase that says you are either training the dog or the dog is training you. And I think you saw that. you know, like, I feel good about myself. I can tell my dog shotgun, he goes shotgun. I can tell him go backseat, he goes backseat. Then I scratch him once and I put my hand down. He'll paw on my hand for about three hours and I think it's so adorable, I'm like, oh, fine. Then he put it down and, all right, fine, fine. This is how it works. So who is being trained? Both of us. And I think when you think about a relationship, Every single thing that you do in a relationship is either you're being trained or you're training. So either you're being influenced or you're influencing someone. And here's a situation where Nehemiah is about to influence the most powerful human being on the earth. Then I prayed to God of heaven. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, they were at a timeshare. Remember, you, can't, you can only go if you're married and you own a home. So they, they're sitting together beside him. He chose that moment. How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? Now, I think this is a key moment. We're going to go pretty quick here. This is a key moment. You have, influences to, you have a chance to influence someone in your life. Okay, you, get that ch- you finally get that moment. And what's going to happen when you go to your boss or you go to your spouse and say, okay, can we do this? Can we get a house? And they go, yeah, I think we should. And you go, okay, I got to figure out how we can do this. How's that going to fly? You go to your boss. He says, this is what I want to try. And, and, and she goes, okay, what's the plan? And you go, I haven't even thought about that yet. But now that you said, yes, I will. Does that make sense? Nehemiah has been thinking about this for months. And when the moment comes, like four months, he waits and he waits and he waits and he waits. And finally the moment comes, he goes, how long will it take? He doesn't go, I don't know. This is what he said. It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. He says, I'm going to be back. It's not going to be long. I'm going to run there. I'm going to take care of business. I'm going to come back. He thought this all through. And I also said to him, if it pleases the king, tell me he hasn't thought about this. May I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe passage or conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph. So, so can I get safe passage with Calvary? Okay, cavalry. There we go. Can I get safe passage? It says, deal. And, you know, while I'm asking, can I get a letter to Asif, the keeper of the royal park, so that he will give me timber to make beams of the gates of the citadel by the temple for the city walls and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and I gave them the king's letter. The king had also sent an army of officers and cavalry with me. Kind of an awesome story, right? And you could go away today, and this is kind of how we're going to finish up. You could go away today, okay, if you've got a boss, okay, you pray about it, you don't manipulate, you just put it in God's hands and say, God, bless the efforts I'm about to do and God's gonna always bless your efforts. Does that always happen? I think of Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus is the ultimate leader and boss and he prays to his God, God, if there's any other way, take this cup from me, this is not my plan, this is not what I'm thinking and God says this is the only plan. And he goes to the cross and he goes all the way there, but why, so that we're forgiven We have an opportunity to pray to him. What does that matter? It matters when you pray because it's not just our words. The very person who gave up his life, the very person who did all these things, who is it who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life at the right hand of God, who is also interceding for us. I talked about the kids. Jesus is now in glory, and he's ruling, and he is our master, but what is he doing in heaven as we pray about all the difficult situations that we have? the same God who loves us, the same God who forgives us is interceding on our behalf so that the greatest blessings to us are to come through that. What kind of lessons do we get from Nehemiah? A man who has a faith and a man who has trouble, but he puts those things together and says, God, I'm going to look for the right moment. I'm going to use my gifts, but ultimately this is your will. And God's ultimate will is that you're with him. Amen. Uh, Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for all the chances that we have to have people that we get to be influenced by and the people that we get to influence. We pray that when we use these opportunities, it's not to manipulate and not to show power, but instead we show a connection. The same way that you came to this earth to give us a connection through you and that we can look into the world and make a connection in such a way that we let your glory shine. We ask this in your name, amen.